On the Empire Podcast this week, we raid the Lost Ark back on the big screen, kill him softly with Brad Pitt, get savage with Oliver Stone and get all hot and bothered over hysteria. Here in the studio, Ken Loach brings us the angel share and Olivia Williams decides that now is good to drop by for a visit. Hello, Pod. As you can immediately hear, I am not Mel Torme, nor am I Chris Hewitt. Um, I'm Helen O'Hara and I'm covering for Chris this week since he's off on what he assures us is a top secret movie fact-finding mission. Although given that I find tickets to Teletubbies on Ice on his desk, I'm beginning to doubt whether that's the case. So on his behalf, welcome to the Empire Podcast, the podcast that never eats a date without testing it on a monkey first. (laughs) This week, as ever, I'm joined by the three staff members who came last in yesterday's game of musical chairs. First up is a man so sick of being dubbed Mr. Arthouse that he's barricaded himself behind a pile of Blu-ray copies of the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. It's Phil de Semlin. Hello. (laughs) Hello. How are you doing? making me ill. (laughs) Oh no, that was bad. Next, we have Ali, who this week met the cast of Savages and decided that he's going to become a pot dealer so he can move to a fabulous coastal house and steal Ryan Reynolds' missus. That is absolutely true. I look forward to doing that. (laughs) Having wargasms? So many wargasms. (laughs) <laughs> You'll understand once you see it. You will. And last but not least, we're joined by Nick DeSemlin, uh, who you just heard, a man who yesterday gave Ken Loach directions to the Forbidden Planet that were so specific the director ended up on the wrong side of the road looking thoroughly lost. Yes, I should point out that we are next door to Forbidden Planet. He was on his way here to do a podcast and he wasn't uh, starting a new range of Kez collectibles. <laughs> um, but yeah, very nice man. And, yes. And uh, despite my awful directions. <laughs> well, let's tarry no longer on the small talk. It's time to take questions from you lot out there. So, first up Kevin Jones on email asks I was wondering do any of you ever feel guilty or conflicted when conducting an interview with an actor or filmmaker knowing that you will negatively review their film Len Wiseman and Total Recall come to mind has a filmmaker ever held a grudge against you personally for doing so Ken Loach (laughs) (laughs) he's been walking around outside our office for about two days I should point out that Ron Howard uh, when he came to the Emperor Awards this year uh, as part of his speech kind of told us off for giving all this films bad reviews or mediocre <laughs> reviews so he clearly reads them and doesn't uh, we haven't given all his films mediocre reviews Not at all, all though, have we we've given his mediocre films mediocre reviews mm. some of the recent ones yeah yeah right I think um, we love Splash we love Apollo 13 we do I think he was raw from the one that he did last yes. which I've totally wiped from my mind yeah. oh yes what the, was that um, called it, it had a tagline that looked like it should have been the title the dilemma it was called and what was the tagline uh, the tagline was um, the truth hurts but it was bigger than the title on the poster so people apparently were going to the cinema saying I'll have two tickets for the truth hurts <laughs> and they went what could have been part of the reason why I didn't do so well in the box office yes but that was with Renona Ryder and uh, a bunch of other you know big names I forgot about that film and it is, it is I, I have to say pretty bad it can be tricky because your natural thing when you're talking to someone is to say, hey, I really like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really good. And if you have already done a review where you've said that you don't like it and it isn't very good... Then it then makes you a terrible person. You try and avoid doing it. Yeah. But sometimes you do it anyway and you feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, you have to sort of choke that back in, don't you? Mm. Like, you know, try and... Obviously, you want to find things that you did like. You can usually find something that you like in a film, which you can kind of talk about. You can say something like, it's really in focus. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the... Uh, it looked like it was great. It looked like everyone was well-fed. <laughs> it's mostly in focus. It was a solid 90 minutes. <laughs> it was 120 minutes That was minutes a film. <laughs> you made a film. You definitely made a film. But yeah, there is this kind of 
unwritten law is maybe it's actually written down somewhere but you, you shouldn't really interview someone and review the film or go on set because you're a bit kind of not compromised but it's difficult to keep that kind of that kind of uh, impartiality um, I mentioned Ken in a, before joking but actually I did do an interview with him where he had read the review and he was sitting in the uh, in the interview with the actor with his lead actor that we, we specifically singled out in the review as being the weak link <laughs> And I walked in. It was like walking into a, it's like walking into Root Irish. But you know, it's you know, they, they he just put his riposte to what we'd said in the review, which was great. And you know, that's absolutely fine. Well, he's a professional, it's a uncomfortable. You're a professional, but you know, yeah, it's, some people aren't going to like his movies, and some people are going to love them. So exactly, exactly. I don't think it's something that you know. They are, no one would have a vendetta. I don't think because they were very thin-skinned. We've had more threats from readers than we have from filmmakers. So. It's probably the way it should be. Yeah, that sounds about right. Edgar Wright does remember his one-star review of A Fistful of Fingers. He does, but I think he's forgiven us now. We give Scott Pilgrim five stars. You know, if he hasn't forgiven us now, then, well, I'm sorry, Edgar. Let's be honest, it's not his finest work. <laughs> it has a Jeremy Beadle cameo, so I think it automatically gets two for that. Whose <laughs> <laughs> side are you on? Always Jeremy Beadles. <laughs> All right. Um, Bill Sitch asks, which PG-13 movie uses their one allowed fuck best other than Ron Burgundy's Go Fuck Yourself, San Diego, and, of course, Anchorman? I have an answer for this. I think it's got to be X-Men uh, First Class. That oh, yeah, was, that's a good one. That was an Wolverine. inspired use of fuck. I, straight away, I think of Fast Five and The Rock's entrance <laughs> scene. Um, sorry to, you know, bring my no. close personal friend The Rock back yep. into it for a second week running. Uh, but it is a, a genuinely great line where he says, I've got two two requests or something like that. I can't remember the exact thing. I can't remember what the first one is, but the second one is he says to the cop, stay the fuck out of my way. And it's a great... It is a great line. Everything he says in that film is pretty much a great line. That's true. And Rob Hallhouse via email asks, have you ever cheered out loud during a film? I was close to shouting, fuck yeah, during the Avengers, but held back. There's a lot of F-bombs in this one. My goodness. We're allowed more than one, right? I think so, yes. Phil, you must have cheered out loud during Tokyo Story at some point. Um... I know floating weeds. That's only had, <laughs> a punch, weeds, had a punch the air moment for me when they're all sitting down in the living room talking. <laughs> um, no, but I have I've experienced it because I saw Armageddon in in a multiplex in the Midwest. I thought you were going to say inside a rocket. <laughs> in a rocket, yeah, at Michael Bay's house in multiplex in the Midwest, and I, it's astonishing. I was like audience participation. It was like one of those mm. Prince Char- Prince Charles cinema type kind of like. Punch the air of thorns. Yeah. It was just people were just chucking their pick and mix and their popcorn in the air. You know, the crap film hadn't even started. It was just it was a <laughs> spare pit. Universal logo It was terrifying. And there were these like these four kind of sort of shy, diffident English people who were used to, you know, if you like a film, you kind of grin slightly afterwards. And uh, we were just cowering in the corner watching these Americans just going mental. Um, so I don't know if that's a technical term mm. for it. The same so thing no, that I haven't. Independence Day had the same effects in American cinemas generally and indeed all over because it's awesome well, it's funny that you bring up uh, the PCC because the last time this happened to me is when I was watching Superman uh, in actually the last time was when I was watching the um, indie trilogy where there were loads of them uh, but during Superman in the comic book all nighter there were so many the Prince Charles Cinema is amazing yeah. in London and if you live in the London area or even if you don't make sure you go because there's fantastic nights there and Chris Hewitt and I went down to see Commando last month and <laughs> that's the most recent screening where that's probably the most fun I've had in the cinema this mm-hmm. year because every single death people were cheering and bellowing and quoting lines are there other cinemas around the country that do this sort of thing do the we repertory know, ones that we know of yeah. I, don't, I don't think they're so culty or so schlocky yeah. no the last time I experienced something like that outside the Prince Charles Cinema was when I was at University at Warwick and they there was a student cinema that lived for this aside from screenings of Broken Flowers there was also a couple of Commando and Predator Nights 
I mean, I would agree with the Prince Charles. I, I went to see the, uh, a quota-long version of The Princess Bride recently, which was terrific. Uh, a sing-along Little Shop of Horrors, which again had people cheering even when they weren't singing. Um, I, Robert Hallhouse, I'm with you on uh, cheering during the Avengers. Um, and then, of course, also the oft-mentioned Fast Five, during which Christopher Hewitt and I notoriously high-fived each other, despite there being two people in between us <laughs> in the cinema. It, it's just demanded it. That was extraordinary. A quote along is actually fun, because I've always been put off by the idea of people quoting. Uh, for The Princess themselves. Bride, it was actually fantastic. As long as people were quoting along, I got irrationally annoyed by the people behind me who were simply talking. But those people who were quoting, that was absolutely fine. I would be misquoting along. That's uh, okay. Because I'm always annoying James, uh, James Dye, who sits opposite me in the office, when misquoting every <laughs> Arnie film. Um, and talking of like newer films, uh, when we saw Scott Pilgrim vs. the World at Comic-Con, mm, yes. that was an unbelievable screening. I've yeah. never been at a screening that's been more like a rock concert, which is people screaming, and <laughs> that was awesome. At 15 Gooner asks, what's your sick day film? Ferris Bueller, Star Wars, or anything Bond for me? So which film will actually make you better if you're not well? Ferris Bueller's quite meta, because it's a film about a guy on a sick day. <gasps> you're right. Mm. Mm-hmm. No Clever. Bond films like that. Is this, sorry, I didn't interpret this as a film that would make you better, but just a film that you could watch when you were feeling a bit pukey. That's semantics, really, isn't it? I watched Office Space, it's a big favourite of mine. Yes. When I'm feeling sick, I feel less guilty about not being at work, although obviously feel quite guilty. Naturally, thank you. I actually did seriously sit down and watch Babel last time I was I was p- properly <laughs> sick, and that was a mistake. I thought you no said one's Babe for a second. Babe. I watched Babe, Pig in the City. I wanted to watch Babe, but I, sp- yeah, I got the spelling wrong. Babe, Pig in the City would be the worst film to watch on a sick day. It's, it's, if you had way too much night nurse, you'd start seeing <laughs> the events of Babe, Pig in the City unfolding before your eyes. I think it's you're really right. really weird. Uh, my one, uh, which is guaranteed to make everyone feel better, just in your vicinity, is singing in the rain. Uh, you will mm. feel better, no matter what. Maybe feeling a little bit more poorly during the uh, Broadway melody bit, but otherwise... Just because it goes on. Just goes on and on and on. I'd also put in Butch and Sundance or The Sting. Mm-hmm. It's a solid one for me. Mm. Uh, and The Big Lebowski. Fair enough. Nick? I'm going to say Lord of the Rings and just bang on the extended <laughs> editions. By the time it all ends, you will be well again. Yes, true. Yeah, that, that would give you time to recuperate. For me, it might be uh, a slightly guilty rom-com, which I wouldn't otherwise indulge in. Something like something like Never Been Kissed, which I actually think is quite fun. Or it would be one of the old classics. Like his, Four Weddings? His Girl Friday. Or... Well, maybe. Uh, but I'd just watch that anyway, you know. Sure. His Girl Friday, always dependable. Anything with Marilyn Monroe and a comedy. So uh, some like it hot or especially gentlemen fair blonde at the life of rose asks would love to hear the empire podcast opinion on the alterations to the avengers assemble in dvd release nick i know you have some very strong opinions on this <laughs> i actually spoke to um the lady at disney who was kind of in charge of this whole mm. thing and she's very nice and uh, there's nothing sinister going on i know some people have been thinking you know disney ripping us off and all this kind of stuff um basically what what we've been told is that the commentary recorded by Joss Whedon wasn't delivered to them in time for them to make it for this because the Avengers comes out a week ahead of the US over here. Mm -hmm. So they had a decision of either to delay it or to release it early. And apparently there was lots of argument in-house at Disney and they decided to release it on time without the commentary, which I think was the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys. I'm disappointed not to have a Joss commentary, I'll be honest. Why wouldn't they wait, wait a week? Because I... I don't know. I, I think it I guess takes a like, lot to delay it. I guess like it's release release schedules and so on. Everything's booked in to happen at a certain time. And also... Advertising. And it's like advertising. And also with the... Um, you, you might be competing for shelf space in 
in stores with other big films if you delay a, a week either side I've been told by my friend Jess who works uh, in this kind of world of the actual production side of making films and HBO shows and stuff like that and she says that getting a, a DVD printed takes a huge amount of time like a good couple of months to really set up and produce mm. I think there might be something to do with British production times that is longer than most others but yeah I don't think it's a flick a button and the made thing annoyingly but um, there must be a way around it and a lot of people are saying why don't Disney put the commentary up on BD Live so you can mm. download it which kind of makes sense to me I don't really know how that works I've never used it but I, as I understand that is the kind of thing that it was designed for I think the probable answer to that is that none of the studios seem to use BD Live and they seem to have forgotten it, it exists right well if you're listening studios <laughs> it, it does exist use it and how about the, the changes to the film itself because that scene with uh Loki and Coulson. Spoilers ahead, by the way, if anybody out there hasn't seen The Avengers, and if not, go see The Avengers. It's on DVD and Blu-ray now. <laughs> but that's been that's been tweaked slightly, hasn't it? Yeah, well, uh, what has happened is one shot has been digitally changed to remove a spear coming out of uh, Coulson's chest. Mm-hmm. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there was a bit of back and forth this week between Disney and the BBFC, because originally Disney said that that wasn't in the theatrical version over here either then the BBFC said yes it is mm-hmm. and then Disney went oh yeah and apparently what's happened is they, the recording they've used for the Blu-ray and DVD is from a different region which had it removed so there's some kind of technical issue but it right. wasn't meant to have happened but there is less spear in this film than <laughs> wait so the BBFC will want Disney to put more spear in it I think they're ambivalent I don't think they they're, they're, care either they're way strong but stance I think on they spear. I think, really. I think they just didn't want it, people to think that, that they were anti-Spear. The oh. BBC loves Spear. That's <laughs> there you go, you heard it here first. I don't know. I don't really have strong views on that. It wasn't particularly a shot from the film that I loved or was attached to, and I haven't seen the film again without that in it. I'm watching it tonight, but I'll let you know when I've seen it. I think it's a shame. Why on earth did they manage to get a hold of a print that wasn't the British print? I just I feel like there's a there's something What's going wrong here. Disney? Seem, yeah, exactly. There seems to Come be on. maybe maybe a minor snafu, but it's it's snowballed into something quite big. They left Goofy in charge of it. Yeah, <laughs> never leave Goofy in charge of I it. Does happen. Happen. I think we've learned to leave Minnie in charge in future. Probably. But it is a shame that it's essentially a vanilla release in terms of the extras and. Uh, no commentary and if you want the 90 minute making of apparently it's not that good anyway but if you want the making of you have to go to Sainsbury's on the plus side the film is great so at least we have that spear or nay as ever if you want to hear your queries tackled tangented and eventually ignored in a welter of puns by the Empire Podcast crew do drop us a line on Twitter where we are at Empire Magazine with the hashtag Empire Podcast please on Facebook we're also Empire Magazine and by email we are podcast at empireonline.com uh, we'd advise you to use smoke signals but the fire brigade object to open flames in central London so please don't do that Okay, competition time now, because we like to keep you on your toes in a Darwinian fight for survival, or at least films. Last week, we had five copies of Jeff Who Lives at Home to give away uh, to anyone who could tell us which massive US sitcom Jason Siegel stars in. The answer is, of course, How I Met Your Mother. And the winners were Asif Ahmad, Azar Khan, Nick Woodhead, Max Funchendinen, and the brilliantly named Eugene Prizeman. Seriously, that's his name, and I swear that isn't why he won. Max Funchendinen's pretty brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yes. I was going to say that. Let's I suspect that's a made-up name, I'll be honest. I apologise if it is a real name. Funchendinen is so close to Lunchendinen. Exactly. Mm. So that's why I think it might be made up. Interesting. But apologies if I'm wrong. 
I don't mean to disparage your name, which I like a lot. Okay, this week we have five copies of season four of the astoundingly good Breaking Bad to give away. That's out on October 1st, but available for pre-order now. To be in with a chance of winning, just tell us which US cable network makes Breaking Bad. Hmm... Yes, everyone's scratching their chins here. So send your answers to the usual address for that one. It is podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, this week we were joined by the ever-lovely Olivia Williams. Um, In her career to date, she's failed to see dead people in the sixth sense, proved an obscure object of desire in Rushmore, and hung out with the X-Men. More recently, she played a scandalous Russian aristocrat, Nana Karenina, and she dropped by last Friday to discuss her latest film, Now Is Good, which is out this week, where she plays the mother to Dakota Fanning's cancer-stricken teen, and she even discussed her upcoming turn as Eleanor Roosevelt in Hyde Park on Hudson. And now we come to think of it, that means that Bill Murray eventually won her over since he plays Roosevelt. Go, Bill Murray. Happy ending for Rushmore. Here she is. We are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Olivia Williams. Olivia, you're on the verge of ubiquity at the moment. You've been in Anna Karenina, Now is Good, Wild Bill earlier in the year, Hyde Park and Hudson to come. Yes. What does it end? I am I am this week's red carpet slut. Um, <laughs> watch this space. No, I'm sorry if you're all sick of the sight of me, but, you know, times are hard. I didn't say that. I said ubiquity. It's not the same thing. Not the same thing. And when your agent says someone wants you for a job, it's not the season to say, um, I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the big one. Yes. Um, so I took lots of small ones. Actually, you know, every single one was an unturned downable acting job. And if you put all the weapons halfpennies together that they paid me, it actually made a made an income last year. So, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I, I was honoured to work with all these wonderful people. Oh, Wild Bill was interesting because I, I remember speaking to uh, Dexter Fletcher about assembling his cast he basically said everyone who's in my phone <laughs> yeah. called them to task at some point that is absolutely true he actually sent he, he sent a messenger for, um, he knows that I can refuse Jason Fleming nothing <laughs> I, I love him and um, so he, he sort of pushed Jason Fleming, Fleming forward and he said Dexter wants you and it, they offered me a curry basically the, the catering was this fantastic um, uh, curry caterers and so for the price of a curry I went and um, and worked for Dexter <laughs> for the day which was great I wouldn't have missed it for the world and I I've got a small enough part in it to be able to say mm. I love that film you know I think yeah, it's, it's very great beautiful and Dexter's a great yeah. director as well as actor funnily enough the, the first time I ever interviewed you was on the set of Below and uh, <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> on which I think I interviewed Jason Fleming and Dexter Fletcher in their dressing rooms and they were playing something on I think it was FIFA or something on their on their, <laughs> on their video games in between in between takes yeah it would have been a video game because it's that long ago um, <laughs> uh, it was a long time ago and that's how I met those two dodgy blokes and uh, <laughs> I've loved them ever since it was that was a tough shoot and it involved a lot of humorless Americans so um, yeah those two uh, <laughs> saved my ass <laughs> a lot of downtime I imagine while sets were recalibrated and not Gimbals for, were brought in. Not for nurse, whatever I was called. Yeah, I seem to be, I seem to work very hard and have a lot of people throwing dirty water at me, and then that I got very wet and very cold and very miserable. But uh, it's a it's a good film. It was it was you know the director fell out with Harvey Weinstein, so we got um, released in one gentleman's lavatory. I think. Um, <laughs> but it was I loved I loved the film. Um, yeah. Sadly, not many people got the opportunity to. Well, obviously, we're here to talk about Now Is Good. How did that come about for you? 
how did now um okay dodgy inside job again um, okay old parker i know is this um, another curry uh, it wasn't it wasn't quite a curry he did offer me uh, i got lunch at villandry which is you know uh, comparably um overpriced um <laughs> but it was uh uh, yeah, it started with old Parker saying, "Join me in my movie," and uh, obviously I love him and would want, loved his script. But the real bait was uh, Dakota Fanning, mm. and you know, note of tragedy at this point because the reason I love Dakota Fanning is because of Man on Fire, which is one of my favourite films of all time, and mm. God rest his soul, um, Tony Scott's finest work. Indeed, and um, I was—it was a bit sort of nosy. I just wanted to see if this astounding child actor had transformed into an astounding adult actor and damn her eyes she did <laughs> she's so good and so incredibly focused and professional and charming and gave us all individually wrapped and engraved wrapped presents at the she? yeah I mean she's just she's actually sort of superhuman in some level she's floating several meters above the earth um and um, yeah, she she just nailed this she terrifying has a role. Very impressive English accent in this film. Now I don't know about you, but if it were me, I'd probably be tempted to teach her some English slang that she shouldn't know. Maybe did you did you give her a hand with any of the? Because it's not the script doesn't skip around the sort of British vernacular. No, no, but she was on it. You know, there was no real opportunity to to corrupt her. You know, you sort of think when she's done what she's done and seen what she's seen and and not taken the sort of Drew Barrymore route you know she's just so grounded um I didn't really want to mess with the formula (laughs) do you know what I mean she was but no we got on very well we chatted I uh she was just heading off to to study English at NYU so I gave her some quite corrupting literature I think she thought (laughs) what did you give her well I think she thought I would give her sort of you know the complete works of Jane Austen but my favourite book is Vernon God Little um, and uh, so I sent her that and um, and that terrifying book um, about the the evil child um, which I can't remember the name of now that was made into a film with Tilda Swinton. Oh, we need oh, to yeah. talk about yeah. Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. right. I gave her those two. I thought you were going to say Fifty Shades of Grey uh, there. No, no, <laughs> no, unclean. Need a shout. Don't say it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Anna Karenina. You've often played the the kind of pole star in a in a marriage. And I'm thinking about either your husband's a ghost or the ghost, <laughs> or um, you know, you're the stable one. Was it fun to play the kind of slightly bohemian? Un- Absolutely. This goes back way, way back to the heart of me when there were two sisters and one was married to the to to Paul Bettany and the other one has an affair with him. And obviously I wanted to play the bohemian one. And they were like, no, you are <laughs> the, the stable, jilted one. And I've been trying to fight that ever since. But very well spotted. It actually became quite a thing that all my husband died in everything I ever made from the postman onwards and it got to a point where like actors would say oh I'm up to play your husband I was like don't do it you'll die you'll die and you know I was a bit worried that when I eventually got married this might be some sort of um, you know auger augury um, but now I think I've had a husband survive um, but you know Pierce Brosnan came to a really bad end in The Ghost Writer he did um, so. I think Jason survived though didn't he and Hannah 
He did. He did. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are hints of a dark end, aren't there, for that family? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Potentially. But, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that family was so likable in Hannah. You just think, I don't want anything bad to happen. No. To it's just, you know, please leave him alone. Did you feel like you were making a different film almost in that? Because the badness kind of happens <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> elsewhere. Well, that, yeah, that was what I loved about that crazy film was it was a road movie and we were just one of the stops on the road. You know, the, the journey mm. from Finland to Morocco to, to uh, Berlin. Uh, was so extraordinary and so so but that bit was the most essentially Joe because he actually was brought up um, in a van uh, travelling the world with his parents with a puppet show his Mm. parents these world famous puppet makers and um, every puppet you ever see ever was influenced by his mum and dad including you know the Lion King puppets and the War Horse puppets anyway enough about that but Joe's mum painted the van, the interior of the van, and I suddenly occurred to me that I was playing Joe's mother, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, weird Freudian thing going on on set. Um, but uh, yeah, so that felt very genuine. That that strand of the plot was very close to his heart, and I loved, I loved filming that bit. Did you know? Because Joe's obviously from Islington, isn't he? Yeah. And you're from Camden. Yeah. Did you know him from way back? Or? I didn't. We, we, I'm sure, I, you know, I, you're all too young to remember potty men, but these little... <laughs> um, Michael Benty. Know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The footprints in the sand. Uh-huh. Often with people like, I yeah. imagine, our, our little footprints have crossed and, and, and on, on cross I've never met probably. anyone that knows potty men. Yeah, before. well, that's me. Awesome. That's me. Um, and yeah, it's sort of present in my life because I'm sure my little footsteps crossed over with Joe's when yeah. in our lives, but we didn't meet till till we did Hannah. Um but no we you know, when I turned up with my hair done like sort of early Johnny Rotten at the premiere <laughs> in uh, in Toronto, he said you can take the girl out of Camden Town, but you can't take the Camden Town out of the girl. Is that one of the great joys I guess of 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 acting? Uh that you get these reunions with people that you may not expect. I mean Jason Fleming, Joe Wright, and uh, Bill Murray. Uh, as well so yeah it is I mean you know there are lots and lots of disadvantages to getting old but one of the nice things is that you know I do do a ridiculous amount of darling I haven't seen you since (laughs) 1974 you know I'm I'm getting to the stage now where pretty well any set I walk onto there'll be someone I've worked with before and I can have tedious reminiscence conversations about the old days. So never mind Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, it should be Six Degrees of Olivia there, Williams. There, there's a quite a good one. They do that thing, oh, this is going to show how much time I spend on IMDb, but they do that <laughs> thing that you have worked with and that my list is very, very endless. But yeah, coming back into um, Bill Murray's orbit was fantastic and and really fed into the script and, uh, you know, playing two slightly weary old romantics who've, whose marriage has gone a bit mm. convenient and friendly and sexless. And, um, and you know, I think it was Herman Bloom and Rosemary Cross 30 years down <laughs> <laughs> That's how I played it anyway. <laughs> Did you get any sense from Bill how he was playing it? Did you um, ever discuss that with him? Yeah, no, he, he was really serious. I mean, it... It's quite annoying doing uh, the press conferences for this because everyone's going, and what's it like working with Bill Murray? You know, isn't he hilarious? And uh, it's a few years since he's been stand-up guy on mm. Saturday Night Live, and he was quite serious when we were filming um, High Park on Hudson. You know, he, he took the whole FDR thing uh, really on board and did his research on the accent and... But then he, he always goes on set with these vast set of Bose speakers 
and in between takes regardless of what you're filming will put some entirely inappropriate music on so, <laughs> so that the you know the presence of bill uh, was definitely there but you know he's not he's not mucking about he's not an idiot he's a yeah. really serious actor it's interesting because uh, we, we interviewed roger michelle for uh for a piece in high park and hudson a couple of months ago a few months ago actually, i think mm. um and he said that he felt this could be bill's oscar role yeah, I, I mean, God, I've stopped trying to um, predict or um, hope for, <laughs> um, uh, you know, understanding the mind of the Oscar voters, but um, he deserves it. Whether or not he'll get it is a completely different matter. Mm. But yeah, it, sh- it should be. Um, and, you know, not not just for that role you know I do feel he was robbed I don't, can't remember who robbed him so it's you know don't sue me but um, from Lost in Translation so mm. if there's any sort mm. of retrospective justice and next up you're working with for the first time I believe Mr Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnold Schwarzenegger yes um, yeah I look having, going from Eleanor Roosevelt who was a sort of champion of left wing politics um, and <laughs> great believer in trade unionism and the rights of women uh, I think we're going to have some interesting you know offset chats yeah on about politics and such like no uh, I've met Arnie before I um I had lunch with him once so um I, I, listen he didn't kind of you know turn my casting down I think he had casting approval and I'm and I'm in there so I like this one yeah <laughs> <laughs> was he did you have lunch for for a role was this a, uh, a possible no role we discussion? have a mutual a mutual friend who took me took me out to lunch and it just so happened lunch was with Arnie, this friend, he's constantly sort of said, "We're just going out. We're just going out for lunch. We're having lunch. We're going out for lunch." Another time, it, and we went to lunch, and it was with Eric Clapton. So yeah, I, I, I never quite know um, when I have lunch with Bobby who 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 it's going who's going to be there. See, that would freak me out if I went to lunch with someone and then Arnold Schwarzenegger or Eric Clapton just turned up and just started chewing some food. I'd be I'd be quite. I'm disconcerted in some way. So, are you? Do you take the things things to get in your stride? Or no, I'm so uncool. I I either don't know who the person is, or um, or I gush, or or I start inappropriate political discussions. You know, I'm, I think that's probably why Bobby stopped taking me out to lunch. <laughs> so I never do the say the right thing. And one more thing, Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what can you say about preacher? Um, what can I say about Breacher? Um, first thing to say is I think it's now called Ten. Ten. Uh, yeah. See, I'm confused by that. Because... No, you, uh, me too. We all are. My my <laughs> contract can't make up its mind. It says both. Um, so Ten Breacher or uh-huh. Breacher Ten. Yeah. Um, uh, I I play Atlanta Cop, and um, and Arnie is is part of this very terrifying drugs enforcement agency team that try and break dr- drugs gangs, but they've been accused of um, embezzling the money that they have recovered mm-hmm. and then his his squad start dying one by one and I'm I'm just a sort of regular um, you know murder investigation cop trying to work out what's going on and this is uh, David Ayer who yes. wrote Training Day and yeah he wrote Training Day and he's just uh, he was in Toronto with a film called End of Watch which mm. went down rather well thank god um, <laughs> and uh, he's fascinating we met when I um, went up for the job and he you know he sold the project to me completely he you know he wants to shoot in a very uh, kind of um, ad hoc way he wants to get some real um, really tough performances and uh, and he, you know he talked the talk so I said oh that sounds fun 
I just want to talk about uh, Joss Whedon because I believe you've done Shakespeare at his house. Is this is this I true? I have, I have. Um, unlike the lucky buggers who did uh, Much Ado, they didn't film it when I did. But he's an extraordinary man. He's what I believe a sort of polymath is. You know, someone who knows a bit about a lot of things, and his passions are extremely diverse. And in between, you know, making Firefly, Buffy, and uh, Avengers on a Sunday afternoon he likes to invite his friends and re- relatives around to his house and read um, works from Shakespeare's complete works and we did Midsummer Night's Dream and Hamlet and Much Ado um, while we were doing Dollhouse and <laughs> then he managed to get get uh, I, I'd moved back to Britain when, when he filmed Much Ado but okay um, but yeah. there's always a sense that he could make he's doing Avengers 2 but there's always a sense that once he wraps Avengers 2 he might make something else in his yeah, house and I'll just try and make sure I'm in the neighbourhood <laughs> be there hiding behind the side buy some milk yeah just drop by for a cup of sugar <laughs> so we've got to let you go actually Olivia but it's just a couple of things I, I wanted to talk about very very quickly um, is first of all is your cameo in Spaced which is fantastic as the cyclist at the uh, at the uh, the lights how did that come about? Um, a very wonderful woman called Katie Carmichael who features in space now and again she and I made a film now this is going to test ye movie buffs called Dead Babies can't think why that didn't do well (laughs) Uh, it was a Martin Amis novel and uh, we filmed it years ago I just made the sixth sense and uh, chose to put all my fame that I'd acquired from that into this movie called Ten Babies and Katie Carmichael uh, after I made the sixth sense she realised it was me she said I've got these mates who make this crazy TV show and she was at university with Simon Pegg and um, and with Jess and um and they thought, you know, there's no way that this woman will be crazy cyclist, angry cyclist. And I was of course. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Olivia Thank Williams. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Oh, that was nice. Was she fun? Did you did you have a nice time? She was lovely. She was very charming indeed. She's been doing the premiere circuit quite a lot because obviously she had Anna Karenina and now is good. Mm. Um, and she was. She was feeling a little fragile, I think, from the night before, <laughs> but she was in great form and it was lovely to have her on. Excellent. OK, now is time for the week's news. So, uh, Phil, shall we start with you? Yes, I have news of um, a book because we are, after all, a book podcast. <laughs> um, and it's there is a movie angle. Um, Stephen King has obviously been working on a sequel to The Shining yes. um, a number of years later, uh, picking up the story a number of years later, and he has now announced a date for publication. Uh-huh. And that date is September the 24th next year. I would imagine that this is not going to take long to be picked up by a movie studio. So there is obviously kind of an interesting movie angle. I can't, you know, Stephen King has been adapted so many times. I can't imagine that this wouldn't um, see somebody tackling the story of Danny Torrance, who mm-hmm. we last obviously saw in the maze of the Overlook Hotel or escaping from the maze, is now in his mid-40s. Um, he's working in a hospice in upstate New York and he's using his telekinetic aptitude to help usher the terminally ill especially terminally ill kids into the next into the next life um so he still has the shine he still has the shine on um but obviously there's more to it than that and this is kind of where it gets a little strange because there's a group of people that travel around in recreational vehicles or rvs as they're known in the us um a la paul 
called the True Knot who have devilish intentions. They feed off these kids and Danny has Ooh. to take them on. This is what we know of the plot so far and it's obviously a little bit of a departure from what we know of The Shining. Mm. Um, it's an interesting story. Obviously, there's the, the new Shining documentary, Room 237, coming out. So it's going to be back in people's minds. And uh, if it sounds a little bit like Legion... Um, I, you know, it's a kind of a watch this space thing, really. I can't imagine that this won't be made into a movie at some point. But who do you think would dare following Kubrick's footsteps? Brett Ratner. <laughs> he can do it. I believe in him. It's a weird one, isn't it? Okay. Sorry, just going back to the story, because The Shining for me is so linked to the location, the Hotel The Overlook. Mm. It's strange, just strange mm. to hear of a sequel that's not set there. And off, you know. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, he was talking about whether he was going to do another Dark Tower book all this and he put it up on his website and and there was a vote and marginally more people wanted to wanted to see a sequel to The Shining it's strange that it's taken this long and you're right but I understand that you know Kubrick's Shining is very different from Stephen King's Shining in a lot of ways so Stephen um, King doesn't like the Kubrick no exactly so who do you think would be playing a 40 something Danny apart from Paul Bettany (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they won't want to play up the Legion links surely no, I'm doing that. Yeah. Sorry. Who should play a 40-year-old Danny? Michael Fassbender. He should play everything. <laughs> okay. And, you know, we haven't seen him with dark hair in a while. And, uh, or playing his age. Or playing his... Oh, steady. And, uh, and you know, I think he'd be kind of interested in, in interesting in a sort of slightly haunted role like this. And, of course, once, as soon as I say haunted, I immediately think uh, Colin Farrell, who's very good at guilt-ridden and haunted. So uh, maybe he should be in the mix. Next year is going to be the year of telekinesis, isn't it? With Carrie, the remake, and, and this coming out. Yeah. Nothing to add there, but I just... Uh, <laughs> the the, the year of telekinesis. The year of early Stephen King as well, I guess. Right. Yeah. Hmm. We'll see how it turns out. Okay. Hmm. Ali, how about you? I've got a couple of stories. First one I'm just going to quickly dash off, which is that Isla Fisher and Terry Crews have both been confirmed as being part of the new Arrested Development TV series Netflix type thing. So that's just a thing that I want to say out loud because it's good. It means it's still happening and there is uh, fresh blood, you know, being brought into the mix. My other piece of news is one of those, not so much news, but interesting what-if stories, which is uh, late last week, uh, it emerged in an interview with the Huffington Post UK that James Cameron had been very, very close to getting the rights to Michael Quentin's Jurassic Park. He said within hours of getting it, he was pipped to the post. And he made a couple of comments that have caused Jurassic Park aficionados to go a bit nuts. He says that dinosaurs are for eight-year-olds, which I hate to burst the bubble. They kind of a little bit are. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, he, he said that if he had done uh, a Jurassic Park film, he said it would have been ostensibly aliens with dinosaurs, which does sound good. I like the idea of that. But it's just one of those pub conversation things we've learned that what would have that been like? I shudder at the thought of him nuking the whole place but that would have been entirely conceivable <laughs> and yeah it's it's just an interesting idea that something that I personally feel is one of my favourite films of all time could have gone an entirely different direction the fact that Spielberg managed to balance the actual scares because that was one of the first films where I genuinely felt pretty damn frightened because it came out just the right age for me um, but still confident that it was all kind of sort of going to be okay with James Cameron on the at the helm who knows yeah, I mean, for me, it's a perfect film, apart from the bit about the flea circus. If you got rid of that, it would be a perfect <laughs> film. But James Cameron, obviously an incredible filmmaker as well, so who knows how mm. it would have turned out. It's intriguing, but I'm glad that he went on Made True Lies and Spielberg made that. I can't imagine any better result 
Yeah, what could be better than True Lies? Because quite frankly, Arnie got the terrorist on a missile, fired it through a building yes. into a helicopter full of other terrorists. Yes. How can I you not love that love film? I love True Lies. Oh, the horse chase is my favourite bit. It's just, why don't we do it? Yeah, all right, let's do it. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I, I do like the thought of a, a James Cameron Jurassic Park. I wish we could have both, just because I think it would be halfway, exactly halfway between Aliens and Avatar. Mm. You know, exactly on that spectrum mm. at the midpoint, which would be an interesting thing to see. But um, but I'd rather take take what we have. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him do one of the sequels. Hey, the there's sequels. still time. Jurassic Park 4. Well, no, he's making uh, Chinese Avatar. No, he isn't. Nope. We can make it happen. Mr. Cameron, if have you're you heard listening. This, the, uh... I've heard that it's been... Uh, wait, wait. How, how have you heard that it's going to be more Chinese? Well, he was interviewed by The Hollywood Reporter uh-huh. this week or last week. Uh, came out yesterday, I think. And he was saying that because China is such a growing film market, he's going to uh, have more Chinese characters in the sequel. Is that so? Have you guys not read this? I've heard this from a couple of movies, because obviously Red Dawn was recut, so it was about North Korea, and Skyfall, I think, they're not ashamed to say, has a Shanghai portion, which was kind of a hat tip, I guess, to the emerging Chinese market. This seems to be an ongoing thing. It's a, it's a major thing. Every film is going to either China or Russia these days. And Mission Impossible, um, the Transformers 3 or 2 went to Russia. Yep. Um, yep. Even Battleship had a section in China. It's, yep. it's completely the new norm. You have to kind of uh, court those big box offices somehow. We're probably going to see more films going to Brazil as well. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. I don't. I kind of don't begrudge them doing it as long as they do it well. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, Chinese Navi. Yay. Yay. Presumably, it's not the Navi they're going to be Chinese. No, they, it is. It is. Oh, how, that's how what does he said. That make sense. I don't understand that. Do they have like a Chavi? No. A far eastern part of Pandora. Anyway, more on Chinese Navi when we get it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Nick, what's your story? Uh, my story is I'm just going to babble on about the Hobbit trailer which came out last night and I've already seen it like 10 times or Uh something like that Um, (laughs) it's really good and um, you know some people are saying it's too comical it's too light hearted but I don't see that at all I think that it will start off light hearted this trilogy and gradually get darker and as the stakes get bigger and bigger but I think it starts off as a treasure hunt so it doesn't make sense for it to be really dark and the stakes are not that high when they go off and I I think as well if you you look at the book I mean the book is obviously a lot lighter than the Lord of the Rings but it does get darker towards the end as well there are big stakes you know towards the finish right and and the same thing you know the Lord of the Rings if you read the first couple of chapters they read almost the same way that the Hobbit does they're very light they're very fluffy they're very fun and then it gets much darker as it goes on. So this this probably is going to have to start that way. Sure. And it was great to get our first look at Radagast the Brown, yes. who is the third wizard in Middle-earth, who rides around on a sled being pulled by six giant rabbits. And um, That was your favourite bit, wasn't it? I love that bit. I just love that concept. That's uh, not from the book. Are the rabbits canon? No, I was going to say. No, They've, I don't think so. No, Radagast doesn't actually appear in The Hobbit. He's mentioned, but he doesn't appear. I think the first time we see him is very briefly talking to Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, if I'm correct. And uh, so, they've, but they've because he's mentioned, they, they sort of bring him forward and get him involved earlier. And he has birds that live in his hair. He's got a little pet hedgehog. I saw someone complaining about the, the CG hedgehog, saying it was going to be the new CG gopher. Um, <laughs> but no, I, as far as I could see, the trailer was pretty spot on. I don't think there was anything... No. Will you say the comic stuff? That's the thing that made me happiest was was the kind of comic tone. I really enjoyed that. I think having watched the Lord of the Rings films extended edition uh, so many times since, I kind of miss some gags there. I'm not talking about the Gimli, hey, hey, I'm a dwarf gags, 
but just a general lightness of tone at times helps the third, fourth, fifth rewatch. Mm. And uh, yeah, so here's to that for me. And with the 13 dwarves, there's a lot of stuff going on if you yeah. kind of go back and watch. There's one of the dwarves has got a an axe head buried into his skull. I hear... I'm not sure, completely sure this is true, but I hear that he can only talk in gibberish dwarfish, so no one can understand what he's talking about. And if you look at the trailer, he's always looking in the wrong direction to everyone else, so he's slightly brain dead. <laughs> no pun intended. But at least they're at least they're making the effort to kind of distinguish the dwarves, give each of them a very clear character. Because even in the book, I mean, to be honest, Tolkien himself really only gives about sort of six dwarves much to do. Obviously, Thorin Dwalin becomes quite friendly with Bilbo and Balin, I think, as well. Philly and Killy are quite cool because they're young, and Bombor's fat. And that's kind of it. And the Aurea and the Oin and the Gloin don't really do so much. So I think it's, you know, they're going to have to kind of build them into separate individual characters for the film. And, and by the looks of it, he's taking the time to kind of do that. That's one of the things I love about Peter Jackson is his really eccentric characters. Yeah. And I think having these 13 dwarves, a few of them are not going to be eccentric like uh, Foran, but just to give him free reign to create these insane characters, I think it's going to be I think the trailer did a great job with that, establishing more in those two minutes in terms of characters than a lot of films do in their entire run times <laughs> yeah. which is really impressive especially when there are so many like you say there are so many to the, the film's going to rest going to you know live or die by how well delineated those characters are an odd thing about this trailer is that uh, thehobbit.com I think it's called uh, offers up five I think alternate endings to oh, this four trailer alternate endings. Mm. I think there are five on the site there's five in total including yeah. the original it's very odd uh, so this has got it. trailer extras. Yeah, it's kind so of teaser trailers, extended teaser edition teaser trailers, <laughs> and now there's like yeah, commentary. So we'll deleted scenes. Yeah, they essentially are deleted scenes, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So go and check them out if you haven't already. I think plenty of people have seen the full trailer now, and, and maybe they didn't realise there was there were four extras. But favourite bit? I think my favourite bit of the deleted scenes is, is when Gandalf reveals that he made a bet that Bilbo would join, and then catches the Johnny. coin purse. Yeah. Uh, I very much enjoy that. I love the two dwarves greeting each other by banging their heads together. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the way the, the Semlin brothers work now, right? <laughs> We're going to start doing it from now on. It wasn't a greeting, but yeah, no, it's happened. I'm a big softy, so I quite like the, the idea that Gandalf brought Bilbo along to give himself courage. I was like, oh, go Gandalf. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Okay, coming up, Ken Loach drops by despite Nick's best efforts to stop him. He's one of the great stalwarts of British cinema, approaching his 50th year as director and with films that have won the Palme d'Or and been BAFTA nominated. Ken Loach ensured a place on cinema's honour roll with only his second feature film, Cares, but he's maintained that quality since with films like Land and Freedom, Sweet 16, Looking for Eric and most recently, The Angel Share. That comes out on DVD on Monday, so ahead of that we invited the director in to look through his career to date. Well, we're very thrilled to have on the Empire podcast this week, Ken Loach. Um, I'm very thrilled. <laughs> thank you very much for coming in and, and talking to us about, well, first of all, The Angel Share, which has been a big success and uh, critically and, and at the box office as well. You must be pretty thrilled with the way that it was received. Um, yeah, it was. People were very um, nice about it and um, it, it found quite a good audience, particularly in Scotland. And I think it's doing well in France as well. Not opened in Italy yet, but no, the audience here was very uh, was very um, good, really, for you know, for a small film. Did you have a sense that it was going to be going to get that kind of um, reception? I, I, I was finding it really difficult to judge. Um, I'm notoriously wrong. Whichever I think is going to go well, nobody goes to them. The ones I'm worried about, 
people go to. So um, no, I was pleasantly surprised. Why? Why is that? Do you think? I mean, as a filmmaker, do you have? You must have an instinct that you've done something that really good. Um, it's, it's really difficult to know. I, I, I think, I mean, the, the film we did before, which is called Root Irish, which was a, about a, a contract who fought in Iraq with the army and then as, as, a, as a private contractor, seemed to us a, a really complex, interesting film. And we just thought, well, it may just touch a nerve, you know. But in fact, I think the reality was that despite fantastic, well, what I thought were fantastic performances, the nerve had been was deadened by so much discussion about the war or a sense of a presence of the war that, that, that people felt, well, we're up to here with it. Does it frustrate you um, that, that, to a degree, that there are too few people making politically relevant films in the UK? Did you expect there to be, in the 50 years that you've been making politically relevant <laughs> films, did you expect there to be more filmmakers at work in that, in that area? I think lots of filmmakers would like to. Um, the cinema doesn't allow them to. That's the problem. Um, I, th- I think you've... I mean, first of all, you, you've, you've got to get a, a few films under your belt. And we got that at uh, in television at the BBC uh, because television was open to writers and to directors then. It isn't now. It's micromanaged by the top by bureaucrats who have very little understanding of the medium but uh, a big understanding of their own egos. And so they, they march in with instructions on casting and scripts and things they don't know a great deal about. And uh, So if if you're trying to work with seven or eight people on your shoulder you, you can't, you can't mm. It's very difficult to work. So that micromanagement in television has squeezed a lot of the originality out of the medium. Mm. And I say we we were just lucky that that we were there at a time when you could learn from your mistakes and and some things were okay. And, you know, we, we cocked up a lot of the time, I'm sure. But that gave us, or the people I was with, the, the confidence to to just strike out on your own. And that includes having a political perspective. I think there are a lot of people who, who would like to make films like that, but I think the the industry as a whole doesn't welcome that. Well, what is Not Ken Loach watching when he goes to the cinema? <laughs> when you see, Have you seen anything new that, that's, uh, that's kind of caught your attention? Um, the Boy on the Bicycle. I saw that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been in the last few weeks. <laughs> and it, so do. what have you seen between the bicycle thieves, which inspired <laughs> yes, you? Yes, and, and, well, the boy on a bicycle. <laughs> and the kid on a bike. Yes, well, yeah. there's, um, there's a the common bike. thread there, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, I know my mind always goes blank. Did you see when, Moonrise Kingdom, which Wes Anderson said was partly inspired by Blackjack? No, no, I, I didn't. No, I should have done, shouldn't I? Yeah. Oh, that's very nice of him, but no, I, oh, dear, I should have seen it. <laughs> well, it's, I think you can still... It's, it's out on it's Blu-ray DVD yeah. as well, but don't <laughs> watch them. It, it's on Bluetooth, <laughs> is it? <laughs> so um, the BFI recently did a major re- retrospective of your work, which, which yes. threw up a few gems that, that I hadn't seen. How did it feel to be sort of celebrated in that way? Did you feel very sort of humble, or was it great to see Kez restored and, and some of these great films back on the big um, screen? It felt very old. <laughs> and the principal feeling was one of age and um, where the years gone in between. Um, no, it was very kind of them and um, very nice that people came, really. Um, but it's quite um, it's quite stressful because you do see what you've done wrong. You do see all the mistakes and uh, good memories in between, you know, yeah. but you remember the process. I think if you've worked on the film you and you see it back, you remember the process. What do you look for in a, in a film idea today, knowing that you're going to spend uh, the best part of a year, if not more, with oh, it? What, what attracts two years? Yeah. What, yes. So, what attracts you to um, material now? Are you choosier 
um, um, do you think today than you than you were when it was just like make whatever you have the opportunity to make yes or, I, I think it's do you have to wait for Paul Laverty to write something brilliant um, well we talk about it all the time you know and about what we should do and I think you look for something that's kind of nutty that's got a sort of a lot of contradictions in it and where the characters are kind of complex rather than you know like Cathy Come Home I mean they she's just a nice girl who goes to and a nice husband and kids and the terrible things happen and they get destroyed by it but but the psychologically they're you know they're very direct people but um i think it's the it's the the knotted mm. complexities it's contradictions that that are interesting and people are always different how they first seem and so i think it's that complexity that's interesting the idea of knotty complexity um eric Cantona. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> I, I I I loved um, looking for Eric uh, um, and him in it, and I wondered kind of a what it was in particular. Was he somebody that you kind of just had this mystique and this enigma for you as well as for you know football oh, yes. fans, but also yes. I mean, it, I mean, Manu was isn't my team, so I mean, I I. I I didn't. I didn't follow him like he was part of my team. Is it true but, but, he, he invited you to Old Trafford for? Yes. Yes. For a game. Yes, but 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 absolutely. But but as a as a footballer, I mean, he. I think he he touched everybody because he just had such wit about what he did. I think I think it was the wit and the cheek and the the delight in it that, yes. that was so brilliant, and and that's what people people responded to, you know, and and he had that extraordinary ability to communicate across 70,000 people and and that's that's real presence you know um, and does that always translate onto the screen because ever since we first saw him as sort of in Elizabeth um, he just has incredible on screen charisma as well yes yes does that does those things always kind of tally um, I don't think so not necessarily but I think it's it's the ability to communicate isn't it I suppose um, was, was he fun to have around on set yes what? he was he was I mean you know, obviously, to, to begin with, the first time we met, I think, well, I was certainly very, you know, I mean, film people don't, don't I'm sure it's all the same, film people don't bother you at all. I mean, they're just, they're kind of rather inflated presences in the, in through advertising, but I don't, you know, I mean, yeah, some people do good work and some people don't, but it, I'm not impressed by film people in the way I am with footballers so when when Eric walked into the room you know there was a kind of collective gasp <laughs> and um, so that was that was quite so we, there was the first meeting for those first 10 minutes you know we sort of rather locked for words but after that no he was terrific and very very human and, and a great sense of humour mm. so we, we giggled a great deal yes. on the set and um, yeah. was a very um, very benign presence and that was a film that kind of took off, you know, obviously fantastically mm, well. Mm. Did that take you by surprise or did you have a twinkle in your eye about that one? Um, Partly because yes, of Eric himself. Yes, well, it, it took off in, in some respects. I mean, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming. I mean, it wasn't, you know, like a, a massive hit, but it was, it was good enough um, and people seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. And was there talk of Eric turning out for Bar City? Not any no, 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 no. He, he, he couldn't came, do it. <laughs> no, he came. He came on a memorable um, afternoon. He he came um, to the club and um, did a did a you know chatted and took questions and um, was it really opened up really because I mean they were just ordinary football fans. They weren't mm -hmm. they weren't cineasts particularly and. Um, 
the, the, the club room held about 250 people max and there must have been over 400 they were hanging from the light wow. bulbs and people travelled from far and wide to touch his garment and it was uh, it was a great it was a great great day I guess they probably want you to bring the cast of all your films down to to the ground for yes <laughs> well we need it really we need it we, we got relegated last season so it's not been a happy few months but the the, the lad's done good yes as absolutely <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you something quite specific Mark Womack was talking about a little directorial trick and I wondered mm-hmm. if this is true he said that when, when when there's a big emotional scene and a big emotional beat to play out in the afternoon you're very determined that the actors won't overeat or overindulge at lunch <coughs> or have anything to eat for that matter really is that um, true? No I, I think they have to eat but <laughs> I think it's certainly true that if if you can I mean, the trouble with filming is you start early in the morning, so people do get hungry by the middle of the day. But normally, if, if you're if you're starting at the beginning of a scene, you you sort of have to work up to it. And and sod law, you'll often find about twelve thirty, you're just approaching a really important mm. scene, a really important part of the scene where you've got to really have some emotional commitment. So you, you've got to try and steer the shooting so that you you don't do it. Straight, you know, roundabout when people get yeah. eat. But I think if you if you are, if if people then because they've been working quite for quite a few hours, if they then do consume, you know, like meat and two veg twice, <laughs> they are their energy is going to get to their guts, and yes. they're not they're not going to be they're not going to have that emotional energy. So you do have to watch, you do have to go around. I mean, you know, you do have to nick the odd potato off the plate, you know, if you think it's too much. I mean, <laughs> Just this is hard, <laughs> gone from beneath the table. Yes, it's yes. Gone. Well, and, you know, big puddings are definitely out, you know, no, no. Um, <laughs> so I think a, a little light salad is... Also, the Ken thing Loach is, diet. <laughs> also, if um, socially conscious director starves actors. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the other thing is, if you've got an emotional scene between two people, they're quite... Um, it involves physical contact, you know, quite a, you know, you know, people getting really close and maybe there's quite physically close. You don't want to curry at lunchtime no. because that's that's pretty antisocial. So you have to have a word with the caterers and say, like, please avoid the garlic a week on Tuesday because that's when... <laughs> and that, that goes double for a fond kiss. <laughs> that, that, that's when they're going to get it together, guys. So just um, be careful. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for coming in. I think I speak for all Empire readers and hoping you'll come back and talk to us about your next, either Spirit of 45 or your next feature film and also that Bath City get the promotion this Well, season. yes, if we can just... Um, Stop just, losing. Yes, yes, just getting the promotion into the top five would be something. <laughs> well, I'll come back and talk to you about that any time. Please, <laughs> please do, please do. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thanks. So I think the question we're all wondering is, you know, off mic, did Ken Loach admit that he actually loves blockbusters and wants to direct Transformers 5? No, but he's circling Battleship 2. Oh, that's fantastic. Except that's not happening. <laughs> oh. Um, no, he didn't. When I interviewed him prior to prior to this, he I did ask him if he was going to be seeing Prometheus because it was mm-hmm. about that time when Angel Share got released. And he said no, but he was thinking about reading it in the original Greek. <laughs> <laughs> So we moved on from there. No, but he did, you know, he says some interesting things there about um, about the films that he loves and his you know the tiny telly he watches stuff on. He just really likes watching football. Um, right. But you know when he gets out to the cinema in Bath and and stuff, I think he likes the films that you'd probably expect Ken Loach to be enjoying 
rather than the things that I think we'd all kind of secretly hope that he might really love going to see. Commando. <laughs> like Commando, yeah. Well, it's like that, that, that story that Terence Malick's favourite film is Zoolander. We kind of we kind of secretly love to hear about those skeletons in the closet, don't we? Yeah. You know, it's, it just kind of makes everybody seem a bit more... Exactly. Bizarre. Well, you know, Brett Ratner would probably sit here and say Victoria De Sica is kind of one of his inspirations. <laughs> no. But, you know, but like you say, Terence Malick, ex- apart, yes. Mike Lee is not going to be saying, you know, Zoolander is up there. You wouldn't have thought. Michael Bay loves Powell and Pressburger. That kind of thing. Yeah. Hey, we he can, does. We can I hope. Gather. We can hope. Okay, now it's time to focus with a laser-like intensity on this week's new film... Re- Ooh, a butterfly. <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, sorry, on this week's uh, film releases. We've got lots to get through, but uh, let's start with Killing Them Softly, which is the new collaboration from director Andrew Dominic and star Brad Pitt. Their last film, The Assassination of Jesse James, by an endless string of words, was a nailed-on classic. So how does this one compare? To be honest, it's a little bit disappointing. It's mm-hmm. by no means a bad film but it's just not as breathtaking and you know great a piece of work as Jesse James was. Um, I saw it in Cannes, and there was a lot of buzz for it, and a lot of people did like it, but mm. I don't think there was the same overwhelming reaction of, of stuff. It's it's a little bit obvious. It's, um, it's basically a gangster film, but it's also about the economy. Yeah, and it's set during the 2008 presidential election in the US. Right, and there's a lot of very blatant kind of lots of political speeches from Mm. the likes of Obama and Bush are being played on TV screens Um, you know some of the gangster stuff is really nice Um, Ray Liotta plays a character in it who gets absolutely pummeled Um, and there's also a death scene which is pretty astonishing which is played out in ultra slow motion um, which I won't say anything else about but that's one of the great scenes and there's lots of nice performances but it just doesn't really add up to much yeah, I think I think the problem with this is just that their their last work together was so good that I think we were all hope you know it's, it's maybe a, a case of high, too high hopes going in, but at the same time I mean because I, I thought Pitt was terrific in it I think he's he's really really good in this he's kind of the the kind of fixer I guess the, the kind of hitman brought in to sort out the aftermath of a I guess a robbery of an underground right. gambling ring and and he's sort of kind of covering up the damage dealing out mob justice to the people responsible and uh, kind of restoring order. So he's kind of the it's kind of like a blue collar businessman thing. Right. Work ethic for him but contrasted with the fact that he's going about killing people. So I, I thought he was absolutely terrific. But as you say I mean the film does feel a little bit been there seen that before you know grey cloudy skies quite atmospheric locations in a way but not visually sure. beautiful I it was shot in New Orleans fair. I believe yeah. but I don't think it's set anywhere specific no just a rather grey kind of urban Empty. sprawl somewhere yeah. uh, there's a lot of sitting in cars and talking and there's a lot of dialogue in this film and it's not particularly memorable dialogue which I think is the film's biggest problem it's there are scenes like Ben Mendelsohn and Scoot McNary are sitting in a car talking about girls and there's a scene that goes on for about five minutes and you have a feeling they're kind of going for Tarantino-esque kind of cool dialogue and it's just a bit boring. Mm, it's not quite not quite cool enough, maybe. Well, we did we did like it overall. We, we gave it three, which is a recommendation, but I think it's... if Just don't go in expecting another assassination of Jesse James because it's not quite up to that standard. Is it anywhere near as long? <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, it's not too bad at no. all. No. Can, I, can I offer a voice of sort of moderation on Jesse James? I thought it was... Pretty good. I'm not sure I'd call it a I second that nailed motion, on I must say. masterpiece. I mean, we got five. Yeah, I, I know, I know, and I can understand why people. I found it a bit self-consciously sort of artistic and 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 long. It um, is a good film. There's no doubt about it. But I agree. There there are certain moments. Anyway, 
we're not talking about that. Anyway, we're not allowed to talk about that. Sorry. Um, it does have what might well turn out to be the year's best death scene. It has a really, really good, very memorable death scene. That's so true. That is worth a star in itself, I'd say. Yeah, but you gave Jeremy Beadle a star early in the podcast. Why yes, I did. didn't you? <laughs> yes, on. what's the problem? If Jeremy Beadle was in this film, it would be four. Okay, also out this week, we have a new film from Oliver Stone, which is a sprawling tale of drug dealers and threesomes, starring Blake Lively, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Taylor Kitsch, Salma Hayek, John Travolta, and a recent web chat guest, Benicio Del Toro. So, is it as good as that cast would suggest? No. I can safely say it's it's not quite what you'd expect from a cast that good, and from a director who's produced some of the best films uh, the 20th century has seen. Unfortunately, I think the script is the problem for me. Yeah, uh, it's the story of these two um, young, kind of mid 20s or early 20s pot growers. They have an incredibly good strain of marijuana from uh, Afghanistan, and biology whiz Aaron Taylor Johnson manages to grow it very, very well, and they want to kind of sell it more and make more money. What's a marijuana called, by the way? It's not mind rape, is it? <laughs> Death bomb. No, it's, it's not the not stuff rape. they sell to the guy in Ted. Amsterdam, no. Okay. So these two, uh, you know, they're doing well and making a lot of money. They've got a gorgeous house and together a gorgeous girlfriend in the form of Blake Lively, uh, who is on full-on seductress mode, I guess. And there's a kind of happy, unhappy relationship where they kind of share her. This isn't really talked about or delved into really they both are her boyfriend and that's kind of fine I kind of like that aspect mm, of it I, I haven't seen that before and I thought the three of them were actually good and yeah. had chemistry and I didn't mind that at all I thought if the film had focused on those three I thought we would have been on something right but it doesn't because no. the cartel are involved headed up by Salma Hayek and well her character at least and her underling slash assassin who is Benicio Del Toro who plays a fantastically evil disgustingly mustachioed evilly chuckly killer who is absolutely vile. Like, he is a true schmuck. But he also delivers it in a kind of overblown comic way, which for me had the few moments of joy I had in this film, was watching him go, hey, 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 and shoot someone in the I have some Mexican friends who are not happy about this film because (laughs) every Mexican character in it is dastardly and twirling Mm. moustache or, you know, in Sam Hayek's case, not twirling anything, but just looking evil. Well, in fairness, with the exception of Blake Lively's character all the American uh, characters are also lawbreakers yeah Yeah, but I think uh, you're meant to think of them as you know the two leads as the heroes cool vigilante well again maybe that would have been the film that they'd made if they'd actually focused on Mm. the three leads I mean I thought I felt this was a bit of a all over the place I felt like that he started off with an interesting ooh what if you know one girl was dating these two guys and And then then kind of added in a threat from outside and then complicated the threat and then added in a corrupt DEA 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 Mm. agent played by John Travolta Travolta. and then and then and then and it just gets a little bit too much and you stop caring about the characters sprawling is the word for this film Mm. I'll be honest I haven't seen it yet Um, I remember having a conversation with a Californian guy who's in LA who was talking about this OC this Orange County kind of in subculture, I guess, mm-hmm. sort of counterculture subculture that Blake Lively and, and, and these characters kind of live in. And it's, I think it's kind of something that's intrinsically really fascinating if you're from the West Coast of America, but perhaps doesn't really travel. It's based on a book by Don Winslow. Mm. And there's a whole series of these books that are about this Californian culture, which is really interesting. Yeah. And you kind of hadn't seen a story about it, like you say. But as it went on, like Helen says, it got more convoluted. 
way too many close-ups of Blake Lively with really banal voiceover. Yeah, she's um, the narrator to this it, film. Yeah, she begins awful. with the first 10 minutes of some of the most awkward and stilted um, narration I-, I can actually honestly remember. Her character gets to a lot of trouble and, and she's kind of segregated from the rest of the team. Also, a lot of the acting is done through a webcam on a laptop, which is a, I felt quite odd. Um, but yeah, her voiceover and narration doesn't work. And there are some clunky lines. Uh, I think we maybe should warn you about them just to give you a taste of this film. There's one bit where they're the two kids, the two young adults, whatever you want to call them, um, uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson and uh, Taylor Kitsch, are about to hold up something. They're about to you know, commit armed robbery. And one of them's smoking a massive spliff. And the other one turns to them and says, are you sure you should be smoking that? Does, doesn't seem like a sensible thing to do before you shoot someone in the head. And he says, and I promise you this is delivered in this way, he says, they don't call it hijacking for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? I'm I think, 100% I, I, think serious. I might have cheered that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, that, that it's a film which contains that. So yeah. before you watch it, be aware of it. It's just a shame because it's like a lot of Oliver Stone films and there's there's always really good stuff in his films absolutely there's no you know with World Trade Center apart there's no film that's a just complete stinker there's plenty of good stuff in there really good performances but there's so many miscalculations and bad decisions the ending I'm not going to say what it is but the ending is terrible yeah the last 10 minutes of the film is awful once you see it you'll know what I'm referring to but it uses a technique which made me like the guy asked earlier want to scream out if I weren't in a press screening I would have screamed out because it aggravated me so much it's basically an episode of Scooby-Doo <laughs> it is and he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you pesky kids it might be only respectful at this point to take a moment silence for Taylor Kitsch's critical year so far yeah, I'll tell you what I would say because I, I feel badly for him um Everybody go and watch Friday Night Lights, the TV show instead. He's terrific in that. And and I feel like we should, you know, maybe watch that and give him another chance. But his films so far have been... Yeah, he's not not been... It's not that he's been rancid in them at all. No, He's just been in bad, you know, I guess we disagreed about John Codder. But they've not been great films, any of them. Um, I, I don't think anybody's really gone. The films he's been in have been terrible because he was in them and delivered a bad performance. I think that that hasn't happened. The films, as you say, have just been a bit... Well, good luck to him. Um, We gave Savages two stars, so I'm afraid that's not a recommendation. Next up, Dakota Fanning dons a British accent to play a teen cancer patient in Now Is Good, with War Horse's Jeremy Irvine as the guy she fancies, and support from Olivia Williams, Paddy Considine, and Kaya Scodelario. So is this one a triumph over the odds of an actor from America doing a decent British accent? Yeah, you know what? Yes, um, she her British accent is pretty impressive in this film. It's quite it's got a quite specific set of places, uh, sense of place as well, because it's set in Brighton. And she, her character um, Tessa, has leuke- a rare form of leukemia, which is terminal. So the film really, and I saw it last week. I pretty much just finished weeping. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a bucket list for the Spotify generation. It's kind of how I describe it. It's quite. It sets out to be pretty uncompromising in the way that it depicts the effects of cancer not just on on the person involved but also on the family around them so you know but there's there's lighter moments in it Mm. if i had a problem with it it, everyone's kind of been touched by cancer in their lives they've known people and they've experienced the fallout And, and i think this film which is based on a book called before i die they sensibly changed the title is just doesn't quite ring true at times for me the performances are great paddy considine olivia williams is the parents both kind of Dial their, dial their performances in in a nice way to give Dakota Fanning the kind of the limelight and she she's really good mm. um, she's not really entirely likeable which is kind of strange because 
it may be that you know she's a teenager suffering from all of these incredible emotions and trying to live out her last few days as, as she'd like to but she's a bit jarring sometimes and the other problem uh, as I say is that people react to her in, a, in, a, in an I think an artificial way I know it's saying that cancer makes people uncomfortable but it, my experience it doesn't make people uh, people are usually pretty good at, at kind of knowing the, the things to do and not to do and this and every every person she sees is really insensitive in the way that they deal with it and that mm. kind of is annoying after a while because you're like that's not true people do try hard and um th- and she she picks people up on that the one person who gets away with it is her young brother who'll come in blithely and go well when you're dead can i keep your stuff <laughs> um and she laughs at him which is fine because he's the younger brother etc but then in another scene she'll be you know she's been caught shoplifting in a in a, in a, in a shopping mall and and she uses her her disease as a, as an excuse, and you're like, well, you can't have it every single different way. So mm, she just sounds like a teenager, though. And- well, this is what I was going to say. She she is very much a teenager, and I think Old Parker, the director, best exotic marigold hotel veteran, he would probably say, you know, this is how a teenager behaves in this situation. But from an audience point of view, it's quite disorientating because you're kind of you're kind of with her, and then you're kind of repelled by some of the things that are happening. Um, but it is handled really sensitively on the whole. And I don't think those things are necessarily a criticism. I just found them a bit of a problem. Mm. And she's good. And the love interest is there. And, the, you know, there is the sort of, there is a bit of Nicholas Sparks in here. There's no denying <laughs> it. It's it's better than that. It's not quite as cheesy and cornball. But um, there's an element of it. Um, Do you think they but, went overboard on making her dislikable to avoid that? It's a good question. I don't know. I couldn't quite work out if she was meant to be as, I mean, I found her, dislikable at times as a character um, I'm not sure if she was intended to be as dislikable as that um, I don't know I she felt like a human being and, and and all the characters do which I think is is the greatest endorsement for a film about about cancer which yeah. is historically been you know not treated all that well on the big screen 50 mm, 50 was pretty solid um, it's hard to do this without patronizing the people involved and yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's, as I say, there's some big kind of golden sunset moments, as you'd expect. Um, great opening credit sequence, which I really enjoyed. And Jeremy Irvin's pretty good as the kind of boy next door who's a bit, bit troubled. Um, but you know, the 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 sound of weeping in our screening room was <laughs> was astonishing. You know, we should put out a call to our listeners. Has anybody ever lived next door? to one of these boy next door or girl next door people. You know, the really, really, really hot but down-to-earth person that you see in movies. I've been that person. Of course, of course. But, but have you ever <laughs> but lived next door to Hang on, I live door next to door to Oh, no, this is oh. getting weird. <laughs> okay. If it's not to a BG. Oh, close enough. Does that count? Yeah. Man okay. next door, I think. Okay, so just to recap, now is good. We gave that three stars. We gave that three stars, okay. yes, absolutely. And... Um, and it is a recommendation okay. with provisos. With provisos, yes. Uh, speaking of provisos, uh, there's a tasteful period drama about the invention of... Wait, is, is this right? The vibrator? Yeah, yeah, the vibrator. Seriously. Okay. Uh, yeah, so this uh, tasteful period drama <laughs> about the invention of the vibrator uh, with Hugh Dancy, Jonathan Price, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Felicity Jones, a stop sniggering at the back, and Rupert Everett attacking the buzzy issue of women's oh, health. Oh, that's awful. Sorry. <laughs> so... Um, what did we think? I'm gonna I'm gonna start on this one. Uh, I actually quite enjoyed this. It's quite fun. Here's the thing: they it is all about basically back in the 19th century, um, women were a lot of women were diagnosed with what was called hysteria, and the treatment for this was that they would go in and be um, 
manipulated by doctors. Dexter's doctors. <laughs> until they had what was called a paroxysm. And then that a would paroxysm, yes, eh? And that would help them with Tell their hysteria. I'm not mm. going to. No. So one doctor started to get RSI, and with the help, and he's played here by Hugh, Jan- Hugh Dancy. And uh, that was a Freudian slip, like I've <laughs> never heard. <laughs> Hugh Jan- uh, Dancy. <laughs> Good reference to Freud as there well. There you go. And uh, with the help of Rupert Everett, who plays uh, a nobleman who's into tinkering with electricity, invents an electrical device to do the same job. So around the issue, we also have Jonathan Price as one of these senior doctors treating hysteria Maggie Gyllenhaal as a sort of proto-suffragette uh, a campaigning for women's rights and Phyllis Jones as Jonathan Price's very proper and prim daughter and it's all actually quite well handled it's a bit carry-on at times just because of the nature of what they're talking about without actually talking about it um, but it is actually quite fascinating and, and I thought quite sweet I actually thought it was very good fun one of the screenings we were offered to go to was um it had certain accoutrements that they had in the uh, hallway and I, you know, selected to go to the one that didn't have that because that would have embarrassed me to oblivion. But the actual film is pretty enjoyable. Mm. I think I forget how much I enjoy uh, Rupert Everett on full-on Rupert Everett mode when he's doing the whole, oh, darling, really? He's a very kind of uh, rich, voracious, um, excitable, eccentric inventor mm. and he has one of the first phones and there's some great bits where he just calls up strangers who happen to have the first phones and goes, oh, good, so you have a phone? Ah. So what phone number are they? Like one? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a one on a, on a small reel. What's your number? Reel. It's one. I've forgotten. Remind it's, me. It's one, one, one. Uh, yeah, it's, there are moments to it. I think the problem I had as I walked out wasn't that I didn't enjoy it, wasn't that I didn't learn anything. I think all the performances, no one, you know, lets the side down at all. I'm wondering who's going to see this film. Yes, I think that's the big question. I think potentially your mum might see it, but your granny probably would think it was a bit much. My mum has not seen it. <laughs> yeah, no, our mum is, uh, is not going to well, be. Your mum isn't seeing it either. I think the phrase to use here is it's saucy, not yes. raunchy. yes. It sounds like you could double bill this film with The Road to Wellville. Do you remember that? Which had Anthony Hopkins as, yeah. as Kellogg. Yeah, you probably oh, could, yes, actually. That's it's, right. it's, it's a similar sort of period of that time of in medicine when they were all very excited about sort of what they appeared to be discovering but hadn't quite discovered it yet. Skinky inventions. Mm. Yeah. Is it like a very dangerous method? <laughs> it's a, a lot... A battery-operated method. I'll be honest. Uh, it's, it's, to be honest, it's a lot less hysterical than oh, a dangerous method. There we go. Oh. You know when they do, like... The, the interviews to promote the film and, and, and journalists do like to kind of ask the question related to the, what the film's about to the to the person that's in them like they're kind of the same person like for instance I'm trying to think of an example I think that's just you Phil okay it's just me fine well say to Sam Neill have you ever been attacked by a dinosaur that sort of thing exactly it's that sort or of thing or what would you do yeah. if you were attacked by yeah. a dinosaur that's, that's the question isn't it do, so what you, are people asking about this, what, this say, to, say to Maggie so what have you Maggie be- this film is about vibrators Let's not even finish that sentence. Probably just leave it there. Move (laughs) on. Leaving it there. Uh, So, uh, Hysteria got three stars. Hooray. Okay, finally this week, uh, in terms of what we're going to talk about in depth, we saw Raiders of the Lost Ark on IMAX. Now, I'm not going to describe this film because we all know what it is, but how did it work on the big, big screen? It was awesome. It was, wasn't it? It was so awesome. And they've done a... uh, a kind of digital restoration on this uh, just re- the Blu-ray is coming out next month so they've just done Raiders they haven't done the other mm-hmm. the other two original films but uh, Raiders has never looked better it looks absolutely amazing also the sound is incredible uh, there are a few shots that that look a little bit iffy it's yeah. fair to say on an IMAX screen 
even though it doesn't fill the entire thing. I actually quite like, there were a few shots where you could tell that the, ba- the background was painted. Yes. Um, and I actually quite liked it. I thought it gave it a real extra level of charm because I think most of those shots are kind of far away, you know, very brief shots. Sure. And, and in, the sh- in the film itself, you don't really notice it if you're watching it on a TV or something. Sure. But seeing it on that size of a screen, you were like, wow, that's, that's painted. But I still like it. But what's great about Raiders is that they actually did go out and shoot mm. all around the world. Sure. And um, unlike Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think is going to look more dated, honestly, because already the effects, they shot the whole thing on green screens. It looks bad on Blu-ray. It's going to look really bad on a, you know, mm. down the line. Um, but Raiders still stand, holds up. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, just moves like no other film. It really does. Loved it. Okay, well, we give that five stars, obviously. It's it's Rage of the Lost Ark, people. You don't need us to tell you about that. And it's only on for a week, right? And it's so. only on for a week, yeah. So if you do want to see it on IMAX, get out to your nearest IMAX right now. What are the dates? This Friday until, I guess, next Thursday. All right, well, best of luck, guys, getting seats at that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, enjoy, uh, keep an eye out for the fly that goes into Belloc's mouth, because on a screen that size, it's basically Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it makes quite a noise as well. So there's no missing it. Yeah, per Belloc. Also out this week, um, there's House at the End of the Street, starring Jennifer Lawrence, which hasn't screened for critics at the time of recording. Make of that what you will. Uh, Rogue sniper thriller Tower Block is also out. That stars Sheridan Smith, among others, and we give that three stars. And there's French odd couple drama Untouchable, which got two stars from us. So that's it for this week. Uh, Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be welcoming Elizabeth Olsen and Liam Blumen-Neeson to the pod chat, as well as looking at Looper, The Campaign and Barmy five-star can breakthrough Holy Motors, which I know you're a big fan of, Nick. So until then, it's goodbye from Phil. Au revoir. Goodbye from Nick. (laughs) What's that? You don't want to (laughs) know. Is it a vibrator? No. I thought it was a fly going into Belloc's mouth. It's a vibrator going to Belloc's mouth. Oh, oh that's not right. <laughs> goodbye, Ali. Bye. You're sick. And of course, it's goodbye from me. I'll see you next week.